You're going to have a baby. Those five words change everything, doesn't it? I mean, immediately you're hit with a plethora of questions like, will it be healthy? Will it be a boy or a girl? What's the due date? Can we afford a baby? Can we afford college? Will they marry? Will I like who they marry? I mean, you are excited, confused, and astonished all at the same time, aren't you? Well, you know, when it comes to Mark chapter 13, we're going to discover that Jesus' disciples are experiencing the very same emotions. I mean, they're excited, they're confused, they're astonished at what Jesus says about their future. And by the way, what Jesus says so shocks them that they don't even say a word. It's just silence. Kind of like Nina and George Banks. And you may be astonished as well once we look at exactly what Jesus says. In fact, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 13. And let's begin in verse 1. He begins this way. Then as he, talking about Jesus, went out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat at the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the signs when all these things will be fulfilled? So as Jesus reveals to the disciples the future, he begins by focusing on all things, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the temple was a magnificent structure. In fact, every morning as Jesus and his disciples made the trek from Bethany to uh, Jerusalem, They came over the rise, and there would be the temple reflecting the rising sun in all of its glory. In fact, I'd like you to hear the words of a first century witness to how glorious the temple was, Josephus. And he said this, The outward face of the temple was in wanting of nothing, for it was covered with gold plates. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a fiery splendor. It made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. It appeared at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not covered with gold, they were exceedingly white. And Josephus goes on to tell us that the stones they used in the temple were white. They were large stones. Uh, They averaged... In size, about five feet high, five feet wide, and anywhere from eight to twelve feet long. They weighed over a hundred thousand pounds each. A hundred, I mean, a hundred tons each. Now, the temple was considered a marvel of the ancient world, and it was the centerpiece of Jerusalem. They were proud of their temple, but. You can imagine how the disciples responded when they heard Jesus say, Now one stone will be left on another stone. They will be torn down. 
I mean, the absolute shock they must have felt. In fact, they were so shocked as they climbed up the hill to the Mount of Olives, no one said a word. And when they made it to the summit, uh, they turned around and in the setting sun, they looked at Jerusalem and the temple in all of its glory. And that's when these four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, approached Jesus and said, when will these things take place? Now, when you talk about the future, that's the question we want to ask, and we want answered, isn't it? When? I mean, if I told you you were going to win the lottery, I mean, you'd want to know when, followed immediately by how much, wouldn't you? But did you know when is not the most important question here? In fact, it's the wrong question. Jesus clarifies that if you focus on when in this passage, then you will probably be deceived. Instead, Jesus focuses not on when, but what. In fact, notice in your Bibles, at verse 5, it begins with the phrase, it's the command, take heed. It means keep awake. In fact, he's going to use that phrase, keep awake, take heed, four times in this passage. And notice his final words all the way down in verse 37, watch. It's the command, watch. It means don't fall asleep. You see, it's obvious. Jesus' interest is not in when the temple will be destroyed, but instead, what are we to do? And it's obvious we are to stay alert. We're not to fall asleep. But why? Why would he command us to do such? He doesn't want us deceived. He, He doesn't want us fooled by the things that will naturally be going on around us. Now, Jesus' prediction for the destruction of the temple was actually fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Rome came in and not only destroyed the temple, but also destroyed all of Jerusalem. But what Jesus says next goes way beyond the destruction of the temple to predicting the events that precede his return to this earth. So I want to dig in and see what will happen in our future. Look at verse 8. And Jesus answered them and began to say, Take heed. Remember, that means stay awake. Now, why does he want you to stay awake? So that no one deceive you. Uh, For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrow. Now, notice when Jesus says, the end is not yet, and that final phrase, these are the beginnings of sorrow, you need to know that that word sorrow literally means birth contractions. In other words, what Jesus is about to describe isn't the end in itself. No, in fact, he's going to describe what takes place naturally in life. Because we live in a fallen world. And he likens what naturally takes place as birth contractions. In fact, it was 33 years ago, Patty and I signed up for natural childbirth classes so that I could learn to be a coach. Maybe many of you guys 
signed up for things like that. Yeah, I've discovered there's really nothing natural about childbirth. That is, unless you believe delivering a bowling ball through your nostril is natural. I mean, coaching childbirth is like coaching an avalanche. I mean, it's coming whether you're ready or not. But, but they call it natural childbirth so that we can go in there as guys. And, and it is a life-changing experience. Uh, 33 years ago, Patty uh, woke me up one Saturday or Sunday morning bright and early before the sun came up and told me, I, I think I'm having contractions. I must be going into labor. So we got dressed, and I drove her all the way to the hospital. We entered the emergency room. A nice nurse checked Patty out and then looked her in the eye and said, Oh, oh honey, honey, you're not even dilated one centimeter yet. You're not having this baby for days. And she sent Patty home with a sleeping pill so she could rest. Well, I, I don't know if that nurse couldn't count in centimeters or that pill was actually Pitocin. Because we weren't home five minutes, and Patty's water broke. And then it was followed by a gigantic contraction. Well, I was trying to get Patty into the car, helping her in, and that's when a second big contraction hit. Is at that point, I found my wife highly uncooperative. Well, we got in the car, and I'm rushing to the hospital about 45 minutes away. I'm going 90 miles on LBJ in Dallas, trying to get there in time. And a third gigantic contraction hits, and Patty takes her right leg, and she's kicking against the dashboard right where the fuse panel is. So I'm thinking, we're having this baby on the side of the road. Now, Jesus' warning in this passage is don't be fooled by the beginnings of labor. You'll experience contractions throughout your entire life. And he tells us about the things that can easily deceive us into thinking that this is the end, that Jesus is returning right now. Look at verse 6. He says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. Did you know historians tell us that throughout Israel's history there have been over 60 people claimed to be the Messiah? It's not worked out for any of them. And so Jesus is telling us here, don't be fooled by false messiahs. Notice verse 7. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are... Only the beginnings of sorrow. In other words, expect wars, famines, earthquakes. Expect natural disasters to occur throughout your entire lifetime. It's a natural part of living in a fallen world. And you know, Christ's followers have got that mixed up throughout the centuries, haven't they? I mean, when World War II began... Many Christ followers thought this was the fulfillment, the nation rising against nation was the fulfillment of that statement. And Y2K sent a lot of Christ followers into panic. But Jesus says, don't be deceived by political conflicts and natural disasters. Then look at verse 9. But watch out for yourself, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings my, for my sake, 
for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't help but read the book of Acts and see that there were just dozens of persecutions of Christ's followers. I mean, many faced persecution. I mean, Paul himself was flogged and and he was beaten a number of times. And you see persecutions across the world today. Jesus says, don't be deceived by persecutions. It's not the sign of the end. But he does seem to indicate that persecutions will result in proclamation. In fact, if you remember, Paul in Acts 28 or 26 speaking to uh, Agrippa, Agrippa's response to Paul is, hey, Paul, in a short time, you keep this up, you're going to persuade me to become a Christ follower. At times of persecution, Jesus says, I promise that the Spirit will give you the ability to talk and communicate with clarity of speech. But notice what he says next in verse 12. Now, brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parent and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. He's saying don't be deceived by personal opposition. In fact, persecution might even take place in your own family. So Jesus' point through this whole section is throughout your life, expect opposition, expect natural disasters, expect political conflict. Don't be fooled by them. It's not the end. It's natural. But then he goes on to say, but there will come a time where I will give this earth a healthy dose of Pitocin. Now, that's when things will begin to intensify. So, what will that be like? Well, that's exactly what he tells us and the disciples beginning in verse 14. Notice he says, So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, that phrase, abomination of desolation is directly from the book of Daniel that points to a terrible time of suffering that is called the Great Tribulation. In fact, you can see it on the screen of the chart in your notes. It's there in the center. A time of Great Tribulation. It's a period of seven years. And during that period of time, at the end of that period of time, Jesus says that He will return to this earth. So what begins that seven-year period? Well, if you turned over to Daniel 9, you would discover that uh, he tells us about a covenant. A covenant that's signed between Israel and a prince that is to come. That's the way Daniel describes him. A prince that is to come. And that prince will usher in an unprecedented time of peace. And he will protect Israel from his enemies. And he will also become a worldwide dictator. And the people on earth will follow him as a charismatic leader. He will grab their attention and he will actually help Israel rebuild the temple. He will help them uh, 
reestablish the sacrificial system, which is going to give Peter fits, I imagine, uh, and that the people will follow him as a great leader. But he goes on to say in Daniel, after three and a half years, that's the halfway point in the great tribulation of seven years, that after three and a half years, he will break his treaty with Israel. He'll seize the temple. He'll go stand in the holy place, the holy place, and require that people worship him. Now, Paul calls this man who is to come, calls him a man of sin. John calls him the beast. He's also called the Antichrist. And Jesus says, when this happens, all hell will break loose. So Mark, notice, he says, let the reader, he says, let the reader understand. In other words, he's warning the readers in the future. He's not warning the hearers in the present, it's the readers in the future, those guys who read this that will actually see the events take place. And he tells the readers in the future that a time of that it will be a time of immediate peril on this earth. I mean look at verse fourteen. Let him who is at the who is on the housetops not go down to the house or or nor enter to take anything out of the house. And let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. Now, when this man of sin demands worship in the temple, the Jews come unglued. And there's this instant uprising And this man has to gain some kind of control. So he immediately invokes powerful forces in order to bring everything under subjection. That's why he says, if you're in Judea and you're on your roof, don't take time to go downstairs to look for your wallet. You better flee immediately. And if you're in the field doing anything, don't take time to get your coat. You better take off. And if you happen to be pregnant are nursing, it's going to be doubly hard for you. And if it comes in winter, it's going to be more difficult than you ever imagined. Now now notice, Jesus also describes it as a, a time of worldwide turmoil. Look at 19. For in those days there will be a great tribulation, or be tribulation, such as not seen since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom God chose, he shortened the days. Now, Paul tells us in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that the church, that's us, we will be raptured or removed from the earth before this tribulation takes place. So that means that the elect here in this passage that Jesus refers to must talk about the elect, those that come to know Christ during the tribulation. And you discover in the book of Revelation that what God does is He supernaturally communicates to over to 144,000 Jews the gospel, but probably in much the same way he communicated that to Paul on the road to Damascus. And these Israelis come to know Christ, and they're the ones that take the gospel to the rest of the world. But, but notice how 
convincing this man of sin will be. Verse 21 warns, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is over there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise up and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So Jesus is saying, you do have to watch out because this is going to be a time of worldwide deception. There will be miracles and wonders that will mislead and deceive those who don't know the truth found here in this book. In fact, the deception will be so great that it will even fool some who know Christ personally. You know, we are living in a generation today that evaluates truth, like you find in the Scripture, by experience. And if it works, it must be true regardless of what the Scripture says. But instead, we need to evaluate our experiences by the truth of this Word. Now, that's why it's so critical to be a good student of what it says here. Then you can evaluate your experience by the truth of the Word. And, by the way, the book of Revelation tells us that the second half of this tribulation, the last three and a half years, will be called the wrath of God. Things will really intensify at that point. And it goes on to tell us it will be a time where God judges the earth and He's preparing Israel for His coming Messiah. Now, Jesus goes on in this passage to tell us that the Great Tribulation will come to a climax with several cataclysmic events. Look at verse 24. But in those days after the Tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then... (laughs) They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send His angels and gather uh, together His elect from the four winds from the furthest part of the earth to the furthest part of heaven. So when the end, at the end times, just before Jesus returns... He's saying, you need to be aware, there are going to be several cataclysmic events. So cataclysmic that they'll affect the entire solar system. Perhaps even the galaxy as a whole. I mean, he mentions the moon will be turned, I mean, the sun will be turned black. The moon will be like a burned out light bulb. And then there will be stars that fall from the sky, which probably indicate asteroids hitting the earth, uh, lighting up the sky. But when it looks like the end is near and nothing else bad is going to happen because it will destroy the world, it says that Jesus appears. He appears in the clouds just as he predicted thousands of years earlier right in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. I mean, here's the best part. We'll be with him. We'll be right alongside Him. In fact, Revelation 19 talks about how the heavens are going to open up and Jesus is going to come down through the clouds on a white horse. And at that time, Satan and all of his emissaries will be gathered up and cast away. And then He will send out 
His angels together, all Christ's followers on earth, those who are alive and survived the tribulation and those who have died. And there will be a great celebration as he ushers in his millennial kingdom, which is actually the fulfillment of all the promises he had made to Israel in the Old Testament, when he, which started at Abraham and carried through the Old Testament where he promised Israel there'll be a land and there'll be a people. And the church, that's you and me. Now, remember, we were raptured. We come back with him. And we get to help him rule and reign in this millennial kingdom. Now, is that not amazing? Can you picture the disciples sitting on rocks up at the top of the Mount of Olives, looking at the sun setting on the temple, hearing Jesus' words all bug-eyed, mouths wide open? Can you picture that? Well, Jesus certainly can, and he's concerned. He's concerned they'll focus too much attention on when these events are going to happen in the future rather than focusing attention on their responsibility in the present. So he interrupts what he says and introduces two quick, short parables. They're parables about our conduct. And you'll notice the first one emphasizes that his return is near, and the second one indicates you can't know when he's going to return. Sounds like they contradict each other, doesn't it? Well, they don't because they were written to two different groups of people. Notice the first. It's the parable of the fig tree. He says in verse 28, Now learn this parable from the fig tree when the branch, when the branch has already made tender. When its branch is already made tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it's near and at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. I mean, this parable was written to those who come to know Christ during the tribulation. They are the ones who will not pass away until these things take place. And to those who don't pass away until these things take place, Jesus is saying, listen, I don't want you to lose heart. Just remember the fig tree. When it begins to, the the stem gets tender and starts to put out its leaves, it means that summer is right around the corner. So be encouraged. And when you see these things happen, I've just described to you, know that I'm standing right at the door. I'm getting ready to rush in. You know, I found in my life I can, I can endure just about anything as long as I know there's an end in sight. It's when I think it's going to last forever and then we'll never get to the end that I lose hope and I get discouraged and get depressed. And Jesus is saying there is hope, guys. There's an end in sight. When those things happen, I'm right around the corner. Don't lose heart. Hang in there. But notice he also emphasizes the confidence that comes from his word. He says, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words by no means pass away. In other words, this book will be the key to defining reality during difficult times. 
It's also the only thing you can lean into that will give you stability and answer your questions. So the first parable, it's addressed to tribulation saints. The second parable is addressed to all saints, and that includes us. It's the parable of the doorkeeper. Look at verse 32. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who has left his house and gave authority to the servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore. For you do not know when the master's house, the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So if anyone claims to know when Christ is going to return, I mean, this passage tells you no one knows. I mean, angels don't know. Jesus doesn't even know. Only God knows. So when is not the critical question, is it? I mean, the question that has to be answered that's crucial is what? Now, this parable tells us to take heed. Remember, that means stay awake. We are to stay awake. But he also commands us four times, look at throughout the passage, watch, 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 which means don't fall asleep. The question becomes... What are we to stay awake for? Now, this parable describes a doorkeeper who's supposed to stay awake and watch for his master's return. But but notice he's to begin watching as soon as the master leaves. But he knows the master isn't returning for a while, so he must not be watching for the master. Now, if that's true, then what's he watching for? I think he's watching lest someone come in and deceive the household, gain entrance to the house, and destroy all that the master has. I mean, do you see it? Jesus' warning here is to us, us to watch and not sleep. Why? Because there are temptations out there that will always deceive you. There are pressures that will assault you. There are going to be experiences that will sidetrack you and cause you to think that what you believe is not true. That will cause you to give up and stop walking by faith and leaning into God and stop believing the truth that's found in this book. I mean, they'll even bring into question the very goodness of God and cause you to think what really matters in life must be money, it must be prestige, it must be power, it must be comfort in any number of other pursuits. So Jesus is saying to these guys and to us, no matter what you face in life, you've got to watch out for those things that will derail you. But it's really more. He's also saying you don't turn aside, don't derail yourself from the truth found in this book, this will be the only source of truth you may know in the midst of difficulty and trial in your life. So we're not to be looking in the air trying to find Jesus when He's going to return. Instead, we are to be alert, tuned in to Jesus' heart, tuned in to His words found here knowing that these words 
will keep us in tune with where we need to be. And it will allow us to survive whatever comes our way. You know, Patty and I didn't make it to the hospital, barely in time. I rushed her in, went immediately back to a birthing room. Nurse came in, same, same little nurse. And uh, she checked Patty and she said, whoa, you're nine centimeters. You're going to have that baby in a few minutes. Well, I wanted to help. I was the coach. So I said, okay, Patty, Patty, okay, let's, let's start your, your breathing. Come on, come on. He, 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 he. Can you do that? Patty, Patty, Patty. No, I know, I know it hurts. Focus on me. He, 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 he. Come on, Patty, come on, come on. Now, I was saying it so fast, I started to hyperventilate. I started to get kind of woozy. And not, not to mention the fact that I was about eight inches from Patty's face and my breath stunk. Well, another one of those contractions hit, and Patty had about all she could take. She looked up at me and said, Stop it! And with all my coaching experience, I didn't know what to do now. And that's when this little kind nurse stepped in. She said, Oh, Patty, 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 it's okay, it's okay. Look at my face. Look into my eyes. Come on. Why don't you breathe with me? Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe out slowly. I've delivered hundreds of these. Breathe with me. Look into my eyes. Just follow my lead. And in a matter of less than three minutes, she had Patty so relaxed, our first son Josh just came squirting out. I was amazed. Do you know that's exactly what this passage is saying to us? All 37 verses could be summarized this way. Jesus is looking us in the eye and he's saying, look at my face. Look in the kindness of my eyes. I want you to look at the words I've written to you in the scripture. And I want you to listen to the voice of my spirit in your heart. Breathe easy. I'll lead you through whatever difficulty you might face in life. Father, thank you. Thank you for these encouraging words. I have to confess, we, we tend to be more interested in when than what. And yet, I would ask you to work in our lives so that we can become experts at the what of watching and listening to your heart, recognizing your voice, so that we can follow you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for coming. And uh, if you came prepared to give, most of you know there's an offering box out in the hall. And we'd love to greet you in the hearth room. If this is your first time here, put a name with a face. See you back next week.